Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us. We wish we were together, but we are not. We are meeting virtually via Zoom, that marvelous technology that allows us to post amusing backgrounds. And uh, <laughs> Tom has one. He's he's sitting right in front of an enormous glass of uh, beer that uh, is the Theology Podcast glass. And so uh, if you get a chance, check it out on on YouTube or on our Facebook page, uh, and uh, you'll see what I'm talking about. Anyway, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church here in Vancouver, Washington, and I've written a bunch of stuff, and I'm really kind of bearing down uh, this week to finish up all the final edits for my Bombadil book. Nice. Did you and, get permission to do the title? Uh, I don't know if we've gotten permission, but they're just going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> the title is going to be uh, In the House of Tom Bombadil. And uh, Brad Beerzer, our friend uh, over at Hillsdale College, the guy who wrote Sanctifying Myth, which I know that you, Glenn, have read and, and I really appreciate it. Uh, but uh, he's going to write the introduction. So I'm really pleased about that. So anyway, things are moving along there. Enough about me. Let's talk about you, Tom. <laughs> I'm Tom Price. I'm sitting in front of one of our very fine uh, theology pugcast uh, pint glasses, which I continuously hear people are interested in. So I think we've got to up our game on that. I, I ran into some friends this weekend saying, where can I get that? <laughs> and uh, so I, I would share this one, but uh, it, it, it would take away from our our atmosphere. So, uh, <laughs> But I'm Tom Price. Uh, I teach systematic theology, philosophy, uh, ethics. Um, uh, one place at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and uh, doing a bunch of writing this summer. So more on that as it takes fuller shape. All right. Excellent stuff. And Glenn, you've got a uh, object that you sh showed to Tom and me a minute ago, and it has to do with a transition <laughs> that recently occurred in your life. So introduce yourself and tell us about the object and the transition. Hey, I am Glenn Sunshine. I am Professor Emeritus, meaning <laughs> retired, of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Um, a year and a half ago, when uh, school was starting pre-COVID, uh, a bunch of us from the department got together in the department conference room on the large screen and watched Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Now you know what professors do in those professors' <laughs> lounges that you walk by. <laughs> They're watching Monty Python. <laughs> so um, in honor of this, the department gave me this, which that is actually a reproduction of the Holy Grail from Indiana Jones. Uh, it's on 100-year-old red oak uh, planking, and there's a plaque on it that says, Dr. Glenn Sunshine, Professor Emeritus, Central Connecticut State University, 1994 to 2021. With the history department's deepest thanks for your many years of service and friendship and the understanding that it's now official, you have reached the holy grail of retirement. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations, Glenn. Yeah. I only have two more things to do. I've got a little bit of, of uh, uh, paperwork uh, to do, and I've got to clean out my office. Oh, wow. That'll be an interesting trip down memory lane. I imagine you've stuffed things into that desk that you probably haven't seen in like years. 
Actually, not so much. The thing that really worries me is that on top of the thousands of books I have here, I have thousands of books there. Right, right. <laughs> and that is going to be a bit of a challenge because our project for the summer is getting the house ready to sell and we're planning on moving. Wow. So have you got a place you've uh, picked out to go? I mean, I, I know you've talked a little bit about moving to Atlanta. Well, not. it's not going to be Atlanta. Most likely we'll be heading to South Bend. Oh, oh, okay, um, out to Indiana. Yep, because my daughter Elizabeth just finished her PhD, uh, and she's got a postdoc there for a year. My son Brendan, at least, is currently living there. Oh, uh, I didn't know. Yeah, he uh, he also got engaged. This has been a really eventful month. Um, wow. But, but we're talking, you know, it'd be nice to be near the kids while, hopefully, while they're still close to each other before they scatter to the four winds. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, but, right. Well, you know, I, I've got some friends out there. One of them is Patrick Deneen. You know, he teaches at Notre Dame. I'll yep. try to connect you with him sometime. I, I think Let you guys need to draw off. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, it's your show today, Glenn. So what are we talking about? Well, we've this, this is a, a topic that's come up before. And if I remember right, we've had some requests to talk about it. I wanted to look at the Enlightenment, but not it, depending on how time goes, not just the Enlightenment, but maybe the romantic reaction to it. Right. So we, we've been really sort of critical in a lot of ways about the Enlightenment's uh, impact on culture. Uh, there are some positive things to say about it, but there have been a lot of negatives, too. I thought it might be a good idea to give sort of a running start into the Enlightenment to just provide one angle on how to think about it. And uh, then we'll see where it goes from there. So I want to start in the area of epistemology and really sort of basic stuff in epistemology. Um, if you go back to the Middle Ages, really through the Reformation, well into the early modern period, they accepted two basic sources of authority. Uh, one of them is scripture, of course, but the other is reason. Now, reason has to be understood kind of broadly here. It's not just rational thought, uh, although logic and rational thought certainly had a part of it, but it also included empiricism. You know, things that you could learn from looking at the world around you. So you've got both rationalism and empiricism under this broad category of reason. And then you have scripture. And this corresponds to the idea that God wrote two books. This is a very common medieval metaphor that God wrote two books, the book of scripture and the book of nature. And, you know, scripture would, would be revelation. Nature would be reason. Reason was the realm of the philosopher. Um, uh, uh, revelation is the realm of the theologian. And there are all kinds of questions of how much you can know by unaided human reason versus how much you need revelation. These are long debates in the Middle Ages, which we don't really need to get into. Now, when you're moving into the 16th century with the Reformation, there are a couple of things that begin changing. Um, one of them, of course, is that um, you, you get Protestantism and the emphasis on sola scriptura. Scripture alone is a source of authority in theological matters. In the Catholic Church, revelation would actually include tradition. Okay. Right. Um, and there's a long discussion on that, too, because it's nowhere near as simple as it's normally made out to be. But another thing that begins happening, particularly in more radical branches of the Reformation, like the, uh, the early anti-Trinitarians, um, Sicinians, people like that, is you begin getting a, an emphasis on reason as the gateway to revelation. In other words, if something does not make sense rationally, if you cannot explain it or grasp it, 
then scripture can't be teaching it. You must be misinterpreting scripture. And thus, since the doctrine of the Trinity doesn't make rational sense, at least as far as they were concerned, uh, scripture couldn't really teach the Trinity. And this is going to lead to the rise of what uh, George Hunston Williams, the person who really put the idea of a radical reformation on the map in a lot of ways, he refers to them as evangelical rationalists, uh, mostly anti-Trinitarians, but a whole lot of variations there. So reason ends up now beginning to edge out scripture. We no longer have both of them as, as, as in principle, equal authorities in their own spheres. Now reason is beginning to edge out revelation as the real final uh, court for truth. This is then going to develop further. Reason is going to become more and more important until you uh, actually get into full-blown deism. Uh, and in deism, uh, reason is applied systematically, at what they interpreted as reason is applied systematically with, with respect to religion. And ultimately, at that point, revelation drops out. Uh, the scripture is just one of many sources of information that you can apply reason to, to determine, you know, in a full-blown deistic system, to determine truth. And then when you get to the even the radical enlightenment, you have people who are atheists, you know, we're flat out atheists. So what we see here is this movement from the idea that we've got two sources of, rebel, of, of knowledge out there, two sources of authority, reason and revelation. Then over time, reason begins to grow in importance and actually splits. Some people become empiricists, some people become rationalists. Until ultimately, that overwhelms Revelation, and Revelation really gets uh, dropped. It really drops out of the picture. And that's where we, that's, at that point, we're in sort of full-blown French Enlightenment mode. Right. When you're in deism, we can talk English Enlightenment, things like that. Um, and when you're at the point where you've got uh, explicit atheism and, and anti-Christianity, uh, that's really sort of full-blown 18th century French Enlightenment. Right, right. Okay. And so, and I think, oh, okay. Go on. Oh, yeah, I was going to uh, make a quick point here. So what you have going on, I mean, from other kind of episodes that we've talked about as well, is we, we have the developments um, that set the conditions for this kind of, of uh, understanding of things. Um, one of these, I think, um, in particular, the uh, it was the, the, the Catholic resourcement theologians that, that kind of put their finger on what kind of happened to lead to something from a, a harmonic, you know, a more harmonious picture that Middle evil um, theologians work with to a place at which you could even conceive of a rationality um, in independence from revelation in this way or, or a higher authority. And one of those was, is what some theologians will, and philosophers would call the development of something called pure nature. Um, and, and pure nature is is th this notion that um, before um, giving uh, these distinct kinds of things in the world, in nature, um, reality, that they somehow have a reality prior to it. And it's independent of God. And so God has basically given it existence, but it has a, a nature that exists in its own right autonomously. And mm -hmm. so reason has this ability to come in on its own and fathom 
this without the need for revelation and the and so reason itself becomes sort of its own autonomous sphere um, um, carrying out work that you don't need God or revelation for but this this is a perversion of something um, that that uh, Aquinas often gets blamed for um, this is this is nothing you know I think uh, Schaefer would, would talk about the kind of nature eating grace model and they always attribute it to Aquinas actually Aquinas is probably one of the few people to offer something that is the only genuine resistance and proof of that is the reformers who early on started to understand this problem um, quickly, as, as Richard Mahler uh, noted, um, went back to a scholastic method to slow down the growth of that development of nature being autonomous. So anyway, that was just a, a little filler there. But this this become takes over and dominates the West. Yeah, I think we've also talked about how this uh, way of thinking about reason uh, is something... Uh, novel in a sense in this in, in so far as uh in the, in the you know classical period people thought about reason differently um that it was sort of something that suffused an ordered nature but it required an explanation itself it you know it called for some account of its its own origins and and so there was a i can i think a, a very kind of theistic sort of uh uh, trajectory that that set of explanations went in, you know, just a search, where does this come from? I, I think one of the things that, you know, you, you tend to get blindsided by the things that you take for granted. So they, you know, I think, uh, you know, these theologians uh, and philosophers took reason for granted, but the question is, is why, why would you, um, you know, sort of assume that, for one thing, reason has some kind of corresponding, you know, sort of character or quality to it, to the reality that surrounds us. What, why, why would it have to be that, that way? And why, why does, uh, you know, nature uh, have to be sensible uh, or reasonable? These are things that uh, people brought to the, to the matter and without much uh, reflection, it seems to me. Yeah, well, you know, my my standard argument against uh, sort of the atheistic creation myth uh, really revolves around that kind of thing. I mean, think about what the creation myth is um, for Richard Dawkins. Um, the universe explodes into existence out of nothing. Now, we Real know- quick, Glenn, I need, to, I need to just throw this in before we lose it. That is exactly what is meant by pure nature, that there is a universe, a nature, prior to exist, it existing. So the yeah. universe comes into existence. See, that is exactly what we get that led to this problem. Anyway, sorry, but I wanted to catch it while you hit it right on the nose. Yeah, so the, the problem is nothing comes from nothing, except in this case it did. <laughs> and then, okay, so so we get the universe, and at that point, the laws of physics come into place. And physics is really foundational for pretty much everything that follows. It's behind chemistry. It's involved behind biology, ultimately, all those sorts of things. So once it explodes into existence, um, the laws of physics come into place, and everything that follows exists in a closed system of cause and effect based on the laws of physics that came into existence in that moment, okay? So because of the laws of physics, eventually 
galaxies form, stars form, planets form, all of these kinds of things. And on at least one of those planets, a series of things occurred which led to the creation of organic chemicals. And then even though the first law of biology is that life does not come from non-life, in this case, it does. Um, it's what my daughter Elizabeth referred to as the Frankenstein theory. You get all the pieces together, you hit it by lightning, and it's alive. <laughs> um, right. So even though that even though that can't happen, according to all the laws of biology, life doesn't come from non-life, it does. Right. And then through a process of random chance, which is not really random chance, it's determined entirely by the laws of physics. Your brain emerges. Right. Now, under these circumstances, and by the way, we have to equate brain with mind at this point, which I think is a mistake, but they do, the Dawkins and company have to do that. Right. At this point, what you're left with is the question why would you assume that any ideas that emerge in your brain, which are really nothing more than an epiphenomenon of brain chemistry, why would you assume that those ideas had any bearing on anything else that's happening in the universe? Why would you assume that the universe was even intelligible, mm -hmm. much less intelligible to your mind? It really yeah. makes no logical sense. Yeah, and that's and fundamentally a lot of the problem with this. Yeah, of course, we have a lot of uh, data to work with now that those uh, those early Enlightenment philosophers didn't have to work with. Sure. But the, the legacy of their you know, sort of their, their approach is with us even to today, you know, it's, and I think that there are uh, just, uh, a, you know, a number of anomalies in terms of their, their way of thinking that, you know, it really kind of just spells out just how incredible their way of approaching the problems really is, you know, lacking credibility. You can't really take it too seriously. I, and then there's a whole set of sort of, well, why don't they, you know, in mass, <laughs> you know, change the way they approach things and think, think because they're anti-Catholic. They never go to mass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and, and there I, think I, I think I got that joke. <laughs> <laughs> and there's an incredible, uh, uh, again, an incredible move away from what the church was saying, what classical philosophers were even saying when they talked theistically and about God and participating in, in being, and, and I think that that was one of the things. One of them, for example, Dawkins' problem in particular, um, you'll note he has this little section in one of his books, that maybe it's the God delusion, um, where he tries to go through Aquinas's five ways and kind of debunk them. And he, you know, I'm not the first to notice that I, I, John Webster, um, the late John Webster, my doctor father, used to say, uh, Richard Dawkins has about enough theology as you could put on the back of a postage stamp. I mean, his, <laughs> his understanding of it is that thin. He didn't mean it as an ad hominem. He, he was really weighing what, what was being stated. But one of the things you clearly get is, is Dawkins doesn't realize, and, and no fault strictly to him, I mean, the whole Enlightenment um, myth, if you will, was that when Christians were talking about creation ex nihilo and God is the creator of all things, they really talking about the one that kind of got things going and then 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 uh, organized it, you know, intelligent designer like a demiurge, you know, in, in Plato, in which um, it isn't the infinite source of everything that gives being itself um, to that which otherwise would not be. But rather it's the one who kind of puts it puts it all together. And so because of that, 
then for them, the doctrine of creation is, is, can be gotten rid of because they don't need, quote, unquote, the God hypothesis. Because um, do they, you know, the question is, do you need, for them, do you need God to explain the universe? Whereas classic thinkers and Christians in particular, it's the exact opposite way. We understand why God is because God is being itself, existence itself. Why is there anything else? Why is there a universe that does not have to be because it's not being itself? Yeah, and- I think I think one of the things that people can get kind of get lost in at this point, Tom, is that in, when we think about first causes, we tend to think about first causes in terms of linear time. Yeah, so a first cause is something that happened in the past. In the past, whereas uh, the way that the you know the ancients thought about it, you know, uh, classical theists think about it is that first cause is the ongoing basis yes. of, of things to this very moment. There, yes. You, you remove that and everything else is gone. Yeah. And see, that explains why, and I don't want to keep going in this direction, but that explains why classically, and for a Christian, we don't count the surface as the primary determining level of what things are and what they're for. Because even right now, me as a creature depends absolutely on a primary cause in order to be and to be what I am. And so the surface points to the primary cause. As Romans says, the invi- the creaturely point to the invisible. And it's that same thinking. This is what is, is broken when the enlightenment begins. And this is why you can have this kind of myth develop that Dawkins and, and the rest of the, the bunch run with, Sam Harris and... and uh, the guy with the beard, not Glenn, the, the other, Daniel Dennett. <laughs> Dennett, Dennett, Dennett. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> We've got some fine thoughts when it comes to Christopher Hitchens because he's he was friends with Doug Wilson, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was also in that group of new atheists. Now, uh, I, I remember coming across something that Nate Wilson said a little while back about, on this matter of cre- creation out of nothing. Uh, and his point was that not only do we think of creation ex nihilo, in terms of some event in the past, we should think of creation ex nihilo in this very moment in an ongoing way. And we have empirical sort of uh, observations that actually support this. In other words, the further you go down into the structure of things, the less uh, things seem to work in ways that we would expect them to work. And we get into what appears to be things coming into existence out of nothing um, at the very smallest levels of material reality. Now I'm not a physicist, so maybe I've put it poorly or badly, but, uh, but that was Nate's point. I I think think that's what Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and all that was trying to get a hold of. They can observe it. They just don't understand how, and they, and they're, and what is also interesting for them is the way the observer is a part of it. But this goes back to a classic vision too, our yeah. participation in reality. And, and anyway, I don't want to go all these paths, but these are things that this stuff, you know, opens up. Yeah. I've got a, I've got a, a friend who's a, a particles phys- physicist at UConn. We should probably have him on the show sometime, Richard Jones. He could help us out with some of the stuff that we just got into here. I'm definitely over my head when I get into these <laughs> things. Anyway. Yeah. Now, one thing that is worth noting, by the way, is that the Enlightenment is really not at the root of scientism, at least not the majority view within the Enlightenment, not the, the French philosophes and people like that that we normally think of. They were rationalists. They weren't empiricists. 
They believed that it, the Enlightenment was typically known in the past as the age of reason because they believed they could actually reason their way to solutions. So they looked at what, um, what Newton did, for example, and what we see is an application of the scientific method. What they saw was that Newton looked at what a whole bunch of other people did, did some stuff himself, and then thought really hard about it, and out popped the Principia Mathematica. Right. You know, so, so they saw it as an exercise in reason, not so much uh, you know, empiricism or anything of that sort. And they used that as the paradigm for how they should go about solving all kinds of problems. If that can unlock the mysteries of the universe, surely it's good enough to solve human problems, solve problems in society and so on. Um, Voltaire himself actually wrote a book called Elements of the Philosophy of Newton. It's actually mistitled. It should be Elements of Voltaire's Philosophy uh, Illustrated by Out-of-Context Quotes from Newton. <laughs> um, because, in fact, Newton spent more time working on uh, esoteric interpretations of the Book of Revelation and alchemy and stuff like that. He spent more time on that than he did on physics. Right, right. But it, it was, Physics was just sort of a sideline for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Daniel Borston was going to write a biography of Newton and was going to call it the first scientist. After reading Newton, he changed the title to the last magician. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. So, you know, when we think about this, uh, this sort of approach to things where you sort of, you know, kind of think your way through matters and allow reason to, to just kind of, kind of bubble to the surface, I suppose you could say, um, this leads to all kinds of horrendous things that, uh, you know, that we have witnessed in, you know, the modern period with regard to political life. Uh, there are certain things that seem to make sense on paper and then don't seem to actually do what you expect them to do when you apply them. And then, of course, think about the French Revolution would be an example of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, the problem with this is that ultimately... By, by eliminating revelation, if we start where, where I began, by insisting that reason can solve all the problems, we can unlock all the mysteries of the universe and all of that, we, we, well, number one, obviously we're ignoring God, but along with that, we are really ignoring the fall. Right. And G.K. Chesterton is, is reputed to have said something to the effect of original sin is the only doctrine of philosophy that has been proven true by 10,000 years of human experience, something to that effect. Right. Um, the, the problem is it doesn't take into, I mean, among many other things, it doesn't take into account the fact that human beings tend to go wrong. Right. You know, and, and this is what leads to literally tens of thousands of people in France butchered during the French Revolution, in the name of the people. That's right. In you the know, name what, of humanity. When you think about the terror, all the guillotining and things like that that was done, the standard way that this has always been explained is that was the have-nots going after the haves. So the people who are getting executed are the unreformed Catholic clergy, the nobility, the rich, and so on. 72% hmm. of the victims of the terror were lower class people, wow. urban workers or peasants. Wow, wow. So in the name of those people, 
72% of the people executed during the terror were from those classes. Well, that brings up another, you know, uh, matter when the data don't uh, reinforce the presupposed sort of structures that they are believed to necessarily support. You know, what do you do with that data? Uh, you know, you, you essentially uh, discount it or ignore it. Uh, we see it all the time around us. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there are, there's all sorts of uh, evidence that we have that people do not behave rationally. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, it's worth noting that with respect to the French Revolution, both sides of the ideological divide, both those that are for it and those who are against it, uh, quote the same thing, that they were going after the rich and so on. Not true. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, it, and it's interesting because when you have, when you when you um, lionize reason the way that, that one strand of the Enlightenment, you know, and it's a strong strand in its early days, did, when it's severed off from the theological setting that Christianity had, or even classical philosophy for that matter, um, when it's ripped out of that and it becomes everything, it, well, it, like as you said, it starts out with this very naive, crude realism that it has a, a direct capacity, um, unhindered by the fall, if you will, to, to basically grasp an already out there brute fact reality. Um, but then you, what ends up happening with Descartes is you, you start to see that, remember, I mean, I don't want to go down the whole story about voluntarism and the threatening God that develops along with this, but eventually, because they can't ground it in the classic God who, who, who is the ground and end of all reason, um, they are threatened by the, this alternative picture, so they need to bring it under control. And so they break this connection to being able to read the rational inherent order of of the world by ignoring the fall, but also by starting to ground rationality in the human subject. And this moves from a crude realism to a crude anti-realism. This is where it's our sovereign choice now that through which we utilize how we see things, you know, through our own reason. Um, and therefore, we we now there start to become the generators of all meaning of the, the reality that's out there. So you have this sick twist happen, this move from a crude realism that I can directly access everything to, wait a minute, I threatened because I don't know how to ground this because I've gotten rid of God, basically. So now I have to ground it in the human. And in grounding it in the human, it, it becomes an anti-realism because it's grounded in my subjectivity not my my connected to the the order of things. Yeah, I think and this so, is yeah, I think this is where, you know, we we've come across that term autonomous reason. And I think what people are saying when they use that term in in this way is is right. I mean, autonomous reason is what you just described. It's yes. it's it's reason that's been cut off from the source of reason. Yes. But it's inherently unreasonable. Yes. <laughs> that's Well, that that's the thing that's, I think that we say, you know, we, we need to help yeah. people understand that, that it's not so much reason that's unreasonable. Uh, it's the person who is trying to exercise reason without the uh, a connection to the one who is the source of all reason. And you, so you have this step, crude realism leading to a crass anti-realism. And then we end up with what is basically today is that anti-realism is really now just, is there anything but power? Right, right. Yeah, and and uh, 
pretty much people have thrown in the towel on reason. It seems to me, uh, it, you know, when it comes to that question, they just say, well, yep, it just all kind of boils down to that. Yeah. Self, self-interpreted lived experience is the, uh, final ground of argument today. Yes. And the key thing is, uh, in experience is not self-interpreting. Right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And right. That, that's fundamentally the problem. But um yeah. you know, g- going back to Descartes for a moment, I've got to I've got to get here. The the most people don't understand what motivated Descartes' move. Um the big problem was a recovery of an ancient skeptical pro- philosophy from a thinker named Pyrrho. And I could go into the history of Pyrrho and all that, but but that's not important for, for present purposes. Pyrrhonical skepticism or uh, Pyrrhonism, or it goes by a variety of different names. Um, what it, it was designed essentially to undermine certainty. And, you know, it, in this period, it was assumed that if something was an item of knowledge, it had to be certain. You had to have, you know, in order to really say, I, the, I, this is a, a piece of knowledge, this is a fact, it had to be certainly true. And what Pyrrho, Pyrrhonical methodology, it's really a methodology. It, it, I had a student who described Pyrrho as the toddler from hell. Um, because, <laughs> because, you know, the, the, the most dreaded word in a toddler's vocabulary is, of course, why. Right. And, you know, toddler keeps asking why, 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 why? And you keep answering them until eventually he says, why too many times? And you just say, because. And the toddler <laughs> says, oh, okay, and walks away. <laughs> Piero didn't walk away. Right, right. And the problem is, you know, he the, the methodology is so effective at destroying certainty that it actually casts a, a pall on all of the work in philosophy and epistemology and a, a host of other related areas, because nobody was really sure what knowledge was anymore. Yeah. Now, there's guy, now, there's a guy named Bale who came along and argued, basically, he said, yeah, Piro, you're right. We can't, we can't know anything for certain, but that's where faith comes in. So he was an epistemological fideist. Descartes wanted to go in a different direction. The entire thing about I think, therefore I am was a way of trying to find something that could not be doubted so that it would be a way of answering Pyrrho. So that's the motivation behind this. But where it ends up heading from there ends up causing all kinds of problems. And fundamentally, it's really because, well, Descartes was in a lot of ways more heavily influenced by Plato than he was by Christ. I mean, he was certainly a Christian. He considered himself a Catholic and all that sort of thing. But he lost all of these elements of grounding reason in ontology, grounding reason in the existence of God and so on, that makes Pero's arguments sort of beside the point. Yeah, yeah this, this brings up, a, uh, I think, an occasion to introduce a term or at least let our, let our listeners know about a term that sometimes is used in relationship to Enlightenment philosophy, and that's foundationalism. So with foundationalism, you're, you're seeking for a foundation upon which to build your, your edifice of truth, you know, sort of. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that foundation, then nothing is stable. And that's, that's the, you know, thing that Descartes looking for is that. Yeah, and his is a very hard, I mean, at some point you have to have some kind of foundation, even the coherentists and the web and, you know, 
all of that, um, you know, but, but yeah, it's this very hard sense of you need, you need an apodictic, you know, a absolutely certain starting point. Um, otherwise you're not dealing with, you know, you can't take the, the, the step into knowledge. And so, yeah, that, that makes the methodological game very difficult for what can be in and what can be out. And that's where you start to see a bunch of exclusions that the the current you know postmodern world with the marginalized um, set up as sort of some kind of you know uh, you know white Christian patriarchal including an ex they don't realize that it's actually a methodological issue that did a lot of that that limiting what could be brought into the knowledge field and what should be accepted within it. I mean, actually, Orthodox Christian Christianity, because it didn't play by that kind of strict methodological set of measures, or when it did, it really compromised itself, was not part of the in of that Enlightenment vision. And increasingly, you see it pushed out, like uh, belief in miracles or any of these things that didn't fit in this very narrow certainty and provability. Yeah, there's a, you know, a great uh, uh, passage or set of uh, pages in Lewis's The Discarded Image, where he talks about the medieval mind and it, it being kind of more like a, uh, a collector, uh, a mind that collects and kind of classifies and organizes rather than uh, eliminates uh, and sort of throws away stuff. It's sort of like a hoarder. <laughs> you know? so, so that would mean that, you, you know, the, the medieval mind would would walk into a, a, a situation and say, okay, what are, what are the things that uh, people believe here? What are they thinking? And then try to figure out how those things could be fit into the larger structure that they, they had. And uh, which made, you know, a very interesting and messy room, I suppose you could say, uh, mm-hmm. where you had all sorts of things that kind of like were, were still kind of hanging around that came from earlier periods, pagan cultures and so forth. But um, it may, it also meant that, um, there was a kind of disposition, uh, this is my take, uh, that was, uh, respectful, uh, in, to a degree. I mean, obviously there are limits, you know, you do chop down oak trees and stuff like that when they're dedicated to Odin or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> but, but in, in terms of even those things, you, you know, there would be a disposition to sort of, you know, say, well, we don't want to worship, uh, what these people worship, but we do want to uh, remember what they said. Maybe I'm putting it too strongly, but. Well, you know, the, it, the metaphor that they used regularly is the, the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. Right. You know, meaning they took the gold and silver from the Egyptians. It's actually back pay for their slavery um, with them when they left. And in the same way, they believed it was important to plunder the Egyptians in their case, meaning to take the things that were good out of pagan culture and redeem them. Right. Right. Which is something we've talked about before, although I don't think we brought up that particular metaphor. But maybe this also means that um, the enlightenment is the most iconoclastic uh, sort of intellectual movement that we've ever seen in the sense that it's just writing off vast sweeps of human knowledge and history as rubbish and just throwing them away and sort of sort of narrowly focusing on sort of these sort of, well, this process of, uh, uh, you know, syllogistic reasoning uh, that. Well, you know. I, I would say yes and no. The fact is that they, 
they knew the classics, they read the classics, and they tried to appropriate what they could out of the classics, but they were the one who stood in judgment over them. Right, right. That's really, I think that that's really a more accurate way of saying it. The the wholesale destruction of the past is really, well, I suppose, you know, it begins with the French Revolution. And that is, it, it, that is to a large extent, a product of the Enlightenment. So I suppose there's some of that there. But the but the the better enlightenment thinkers really believed it was important to study this stuff, to learn the philosophy and things like that, uh, because this is a set of of information that it's worth knowing so that you can use it or refer to it uh, as within your reasoning. You know, so they didn't. It wasn't a wholesale destruction of the past. That's really something that that is. You know, like I said, starts with the French Revolution. It's really more characteristic of our era. Right. Well, this, maybe this is a good point to kind of transi- transition a little bit to think about uh, the reaction to the Enlightenment, uh, Romanticism. Yeah. Now, now, what's interesting about this is it's something that Tom brought up uh, before in that when you're talking about autonomous reason, when you're talking about the individual making these kinds of decisions and choices and all that sort of thing, the next step that you get are people who begin questioning the direction the Enlightenment is going and saying that reason, <clears throat> reason isn't all it's cracked up to be. Mm-hmm. Because the fact of the matter is, well, to use modern terminology, if all you've got is reason, you're a robot. Yeah. You know, what's really important, what really makes life, gives life zest, is your emotions. It's sense of what they called sensibility. You know, this is uh, Jane Austen's sense and sensibility. You know, one of them is is who one of the sisters is always acting according to good sense, and the other is always following her emotions. You know, it's this idea of sensibility, which uh, is connected to aesthetics. It's connected to a whole bunch of things. Um, and this is another thing that I'd like to shoot Rousseau for, <laughs> but um, but he's really at the at sort of the fountainhead of that. And it's that, with the rise of Romanticism, primarily in the 19th century, what you're seeing is a reaction against the excesses of the Enlightenment. You're you're seeing a reaction against pure rationalism. You're seeing a reaction against the French Revolution and against, um, you know, even against the Industrial Revolution, all of these kinds of things in the name of something that is far more human, far more vital, far more fundamental, which is your inner life, your emotions, your your sensibility. And they I think that they they also, I mean, we've got one of the one of the fruits of the increasing rationalism or empiricism, depending on what what polarity of the Enlightenment, both were leading to a very strong machine-like view of nature. And so the human being, if they're going to have anything about them that is not simply more than just just being a, a set of parts interacting, um, had to find this place in which there was a genuine something to the human being that was more than just that. And so feeling seemed to be that place. Um, I know in the theological world, it was very similar. You had um, after Immanuel Kant, the neo-Kantians in, in Germany, very strong for a long period in the ethical life or the or the or the Gefühl, the Schleiermacher, became the only place to talk about a human being and and what made them 
anything different. I mean, what gave them some kind of distinction, spiritual distinction from everything else. So I think that pressure of the mechanistic universe was uh, stifling freedom and the human being. I think it's, I think it's worth thinking a little bit about uh, the legacy of romanticism on evangelicalism, because I think the revivalists uh, really were tied into that without maybe being fully aware of what they were doing. But, you know, when I'm thinking about people, you know, in the 19th century, uh, more than second great awakening right than the 18th century but uh there were some uh people in romanticism who thought that romanticism was a way to preserve or at least uh, bring forward uh theological uh realities or truths into sort of the sort of the modern world I'm thinking about samuel taylor coleridge for one who was a believer his, his politics were were kind of radical but uh, he was very self-consciously Christian, and uh, and uh, you know, and by the way, uh, you know Carl Truman's book, this book that uh, we talked a little bit about, his latest, uh, gets into Shelley and uh, Blake and uh, uh, Wordsworth and so forth, and uh, he, he does a nice job of of sort of laying out, you know, sort of the the program. But there were uh, people who. Uh, thought this was the way to go. And even, you know, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, I think, kind of thought of themselves as having a kind of romantic element. Certainly, you know, mm. George MacDonald thought of himself that way. Well, the, and, and the important thing to remember is that romanticism, al although the romantics as presented by Carl Truman fall in that direction, there are other components to this as well that are really important. Yeah. So, for example, you get a resurgence of interest in the Middle Ages. And, you know, this is where the Brothers Grimm come in, collecting the stories. Um, yeah. But but along, this is where our, the Arthurian legends come come to new life. You get Rackham, you get um, uh, the Lady of Shalott, uh, uh, all, all of these kinds of things, Tennyson. You get you all get, of these kinds of things emerging during this period, because what they're looking for is sort of a mythical golden age in the past that never really existed, but that allows them to escape from the pressures and the rationalism of the present. And it's that component of the, the romantic response that I think Lewis and Tolkien pick up on. Yeah. That, that there are things that have gone fundamentally wrong with the modern world. And the romantics were trying to identify what it was and, and how to solve it. And I think, like I said, Lewis and Tolkien are picking up on that aspect of it and really critiquing modernity as a result. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's helpful because you know we it's good to sort of comb out the, these distinctions yeah. because uh, you know it'd be possible to completely write off a lot of romanticism, which I which I think have have has redeeming qualities. You know, like uh, you know, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner or Kubla Khan or a couple of poems that I really uh, find quite moving and profound. But, you know, even the arts and crafts movement, John Ruskin and all those guys, they're, they're sort of the outworking of it and sort of a, uh, a revalorization of craft and, and things like that. Also yeah. inspired by, you know, many, you know, medieval approaches to, to the material world and to making things. Right. So, you have and you have I mean, um, you think of Herder, 
I mean, the one who really brought us back, he was influenced by that whole movement, brought us hermeneutics um, and, and the whole focus on the way in which interpreting it, 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 it is caught within a wider sense of rea- you know, reality than what is limited just to, to the material. And he's the one who cut, of course, the restoration of uh, original languages um, in this time and the move back to like in Finland, the Kalevala, the, their famous mythical work in which the finding of, the, of I mean, the restoring of the language um, and the connection to national stories. And so this whole notion of national identity, a people identity, tribal, which postmodernism takes its own way. But I think what, what you have going on, Glenn, is exactly what Glenn was hitting at, is when you have this breakdown that Christianity was forging in, especially in, in the West for so long, from so many pieces. I mean, you look at really the outgrowth of early orthodoxy from North Africa and Syria, all these countries. You have the Hellenic tradition, you have the Hebraic, but you have all these other cultures as well. But bringing to get that into uh, and unifying this within a theological vision, it wasn't perfect. It had its tensions. That's what allowed for problems to develop. But you had spirituality and rationality be able and 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 um, and the, the, even the mystical to be held together within a theological vision that didn't um, pivot up against each other. And now, when that's broken, and you have one strand, the rational or the empirical dominating, well, again, it's left so much out of the picture. And so now we have to get it back in. Well, this uh, the Romantic period saying, look, there's spiritual. And there are um, humanistic elements that uh, need to be a part of anything to be a full human being. And you, so we shouldn't leave them out. Yeah. Have you seen Remy Bragg's book, uh, the Eclectic Culture? Does that ring a bell? Yeah. 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 He, you know, the, the genius of the West, uh, I think, has, it has a lot to do with this dynamic of things that are sort of constantly sort of uh, clashing or maybe clashing is the wrong way of putting it, but sort of these different sort of ed, you know, things that are going on within Western culture that are really the genesis and the genius of our tradition. Like, you know, every once in a while someone will, you know, commiserate about, uh, you know, the growth of, of say, you know, uh, China's influence on the global economy. And there's part of me that says, yeah, I, I see, you know, some things to be worried about there. And on the other hand, everything they do seems to be just a kind of a reproduction of stuff that we've done. I mean, there's there's <laughs> nothing new <laughs> that's being that's coming into at least the modern world uh, through the East. It's all sort of reworking stuff that, you know, you think about the United States, you know, what when people want to do th- new things, they come to this sort of messy, chaotic place called the United States. Um, not to highly regimented and sort of controlled environments like increasingly Western Europe and Canada. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, uh, I'm kind of, I'm kind of traipsing down a a, a path here that perhaps I'm getting myself into a a (laughs) (laughs) cul-de-sac. But getting back to getting back to this, the, these things related to romanticism. So we have these two things. We've got this sort of, uh, sort of negative sort of implications of romanticism. And then we have some positive implications. How do we say the same thing about the enlightenment? Okay. There are some positive things that come out of the enlightenment too. Um, You know, we, we focused on sort of the, the extremes, the difficulties that, that come up from hyper-rationalism or rationalism divorced from revelation and all that sort of thing. But having said that, 
a lot of what's going on during the Enlightenment sets the groundwork for things that are going to happen in the 19th century and real advances in science and medicine and all kinds of other areas that have a positive effect on human life. I mean, so we we have to be careful that, you know, when you look at human history, there are very few people who are pure heroes or pure villains. That's right. Very, and very few movements that are pure heroes or pure villains. And there's so no... There are positive things about the Enlightenment, but there are also positive things about Romanticism. And they're trying to correct each other in a sense. But without Christianity as a foundation, you can't. You can't really, one can't really correct the other. And this is this is one of the things I think, yeah, there, this is an important thing. I, I've had people ask the question, you know, you've mentioned, you know, some of the aspects of modernity and post-modernity. And so how, how do I remain pure? Um, and I think this is an important topic and show to address this because it, this, it, part one is you can't. <laughs> You're no matter what you have been shaped and formed into a time in which everything about us is shaped by the these the these forces. Um, so what we have to do is learn how to be faithful within that context and study, show yourself to prove, bring all things into conformity to Christ. So we're going to have a Christ shaped witness um, as we're faithful to Christ and drawing off the riches of Christian intellectual tradition to help have wisdom to address the age. But people looking at us years from now are still going to see things that look like enlightenment and look like post-enlightenment. And so if we're looking for a a pure Christian form to be expressed within these conditions, it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we can do is try to discern what is what is in continuity to to the riches of Christianity and what needs to 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 be uh, we we need to be weaned off of. Maybe that's our that maybe that's our great task um, to be the new synthesis, you know, or the new synthesizers, you know, sort of hmm. sorting, categorizing, trying to figure out the good, the bad, you know, doing the work of an apothecary, you know. Like working with you know poisonous venoms and drawing out their medicinal uses. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way. Well, of putting it. Yeah, you know. And the other thing that I would add here, and this is the thing that I always go to when people are feeling sort of despairing, because a lot of people feel that way. You know, when I talk about critical theory, I don't know how many people have talked to me about the fear that that comes from my discussion of critical theory, and the answer is number one, there's no reason to fear. Jesus is still risen. And God is still sovereign over the rise and fall of nations, and he still has plans for, for the good for all of us. And he will work all things to our good. So there's no need to fear. Yeah. But the other part of it is, you know, everybody's favorite verse, I, verses, I think, for evangelism as evangelicals are Ephesians 2, 8, 9. They ignore verse 10. <laughs> right. Verse 10 says... For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Yeah. Which is a way of saying that we are custom built for the time we're living in. Right. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. And so we got we got work to do. There's no question about that. But we are custom built for this time. Well, when you think about like the work of the university, I was talking about this with somebody the other day. When we think about the pomp and circumstance at a graduation, you know, the, you've got all of these uh, academics wearing their robes, and in their robes, you know, they've got hoods, you know, mimicking what was the a real hoods. 
Yeah, that's right. <laughs> We're making re a real hood, <laughs> but the colors that line them represent the various disciplines. And as we know, you know, the, the, the disciplines who led the way historically, and I don't know if they still, this is still the case. You would be able to tell me, uh, Glenn, cause you walked in those processions many times. Uh, historically it was, you know, uh, you know, theology and philosophy that led the procession. And the idea was that those were the disciplines that, that were kind of broken down into the sub-disciplines, but fed into those disciplines. And they were the ones who gave you the big picture, how it all, or at least we're supposed to anyway. That's the yeah. ideal. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe that's what we wish. We just need to think about that again. Uh, how, how do we do that? You know, here, here's an interesting point on that related to the Enlightenment. And this is from John Locke. Locke, you know, we always talk about Locke typically right now in connection with political theory. But Locke was also very, very important in his period for his psychology. And Lockean psychology said that human beings are born as blank slates, Latin tabula rasa. Right. And we, there are no innate ideas. There are no innate structures in our mind, which means, by the way, there's no original sin. Um and then we accumulate experiences and our mind begins to sort these things out and organize them. And that's how we learn. Now, this provides the foundation for an entire theory of education, which I'm not going to get into. But it also leads to something that occurs during the Enlightenment that we tend to ignore completely. In the Enlightenment, two guys named Diderot and D'Alembert, uh, Diderot being the more important of the two, by the way, an atheist, uh, decided to create an encyclopedia, a summary of all human knowledge. And there were other encyclopedias that had been done before this, but the, the Enlightenment Encyclopedia, Diderot's Encyclopedia, was arguably the most important for a couple of reasons. First of all, every article in it was given this sort of Enlightenment spin. They only picked people to write the articles who had kind of a progressive outlook. So it's, in a sense, a work of propaganda, a work to propagate ideas. But the other thing that's really important about it is how it was organized. For the first time, an encyclopedia was organized alphabetically. Hmm. Now, we think that this is just the normal and natural way of doing it. But all previous encyclopedias were organized along the lines of what you just suggested, Chris, that there are foundational ideas, there are foundational disciplines and everything else spills out from these. So they were organized in the logical order in which the material needed to be presented. Now, Diderot and D'Alembert, operating out of Lockean psychology, argued that no, there are no natural connections between disciplines. Hmm. That, in fact, the best thing that you can do is organize the material alphabetically, let people look things up on their own, and figure out how they want to organize it. And that's fascinating. I, I was unaware of that. Uh, sort of how most people don't. Most people who studied the Enlightenment don't catch the significance of that. Yeah, yeah, it's hugely significant. It's sort of a. It sort of goes along with uh, the approach to measuring things. You know, when you think about the imperial method, which basically is corresponding to human body parts. You know, a foot was a foot, <laughs> <laughs> roughly a foot, to sort of an arbitrary uh, method, which relied upon you know, you know, the number ten is as a way to organize 
you know, lengths and break things down or add things up. But there was a, only a sort of a coincidental relationship to human, the human form. Um, now you think about a meter versus a yard and things like that. But I, I think uh, uh, why, you know, what, 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 what this makes me wonder is why haven't uh, Christian thinkers, why, isn't the, why haven't intellectuals within the church said, you know what, we need our own encyclopedia and we need to go back to this, uh, this sort of classical approach, the, the, you know, coming from medieval sort of the medieval way of thinking to re, sort of reintegrate that. Ter- um, that yeah. It, yeah. That, that territory. And it likewise connected with You mentioned that locking um, the significance of Locke's um, development of psychology, which I think is very much with it. Is, is he also it, it, it saw that there was no such thing as really a continuous self. Um, you know, classically we had a Christian understanding or even classical Aristotelian, you know, sort of the soul being, being that you know connected so much to the form of the body, um, but the, the but for for Locke, memory is the all, continuous memory of, of experience is what connects you, and mm-hmm. so for example, if you lose your memory, your your identity um, as a self is completely um, disconnected. But also, what it does is it loosens up uh, any strong sense, which makes the the, the basically the no self of post modernity a very attractive byproduct of that thinking gone the wrong way um and so but yeah yeah i think i think chris here your point is is exactly what you know i've i've kind of sensed for a long time and i see few people doing i mean i see uh, i think it's is it mike canby who's doing the one no god no science right i think he's actually trying to do something like that with natural science and say wait a minute until you've dealt with the theological picture and not just not just saying okay what does science look like from a set of biblical assumptions but actually measuring the full metaphysical vision that is communicated to us in the bible and christian doctrine and then starting to to measure and reorient the disciplines the right way in light of it um, but it is very it's very it's an early work but i think i think this is is the task at hand yeah. you know well, you, it, this, it would require us for us to do it right. Uh, something on the scale of Diderot's encyclopedia. I mean, we'd have to have a lot of scholars involved. And you'd have to have somebody with the understanding to organize it. Yeah. Right, which right, is right. itself its own challenge. You know, the problem that comes up, if you look at somebody like Diderot, um, this guy was a mathematician. He was a playwright. He was a philosopher. I mean, he he was one of these polymaths yeah. that you run into in the 18th century. We have very few polymaths today because education has become so increasingly specialized that there are very few people who can really claim to be experts in multiple fields. Yeah. Um, you know, there's the old joke yeah. about the process of education being to learning more and more about less and less until eventually you know absolutely everything about absolutely nothing. And then you get your PhD. And then you get your PhD. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there, you know, but but you really need someone to organize this who is a genuine polymath. Yeah. Because without that, without that, you don't know how to make the connections. Yeah. It. It. And it's. I mean, I. There's a lot to, to follow in that. I know that Alistair McIntyre, the uh, famed uh, sort of Catholic uh, ethicist. 
Um, and he, he did a, a series of lectures. I, think, I believe it was the Gifford lectures. Um, I think it was called Three Rival Something's Immoral Theory. Yep. And then he looks into the theological kind of and, and philosophical roots at this. He looks at genealogy. Um, he looks at encyclopedia traditions and then the kind of virtue tradition that got left behind. And he, he, he engages the way in which, how significant Augustine um, was in particular for all, all, all of this and, and Aquinas as well. And he saw sort of a retrieval. I mean, this is sort of what his ethical work, a retrieval of the virtues. But he, he, his argument is that you have to really go back to where those breaks happened before the Enlightenment um, to really start redressing, you know, re addressing these things the way they should have gone in light of what the church actually did give us, that we don't need to go start from the bottom up again. Um, so it will require some refining and from for being Protestants, we'll want to refine in directions um, that, that others may not go, but, but nevertheless, we have a lot, this is what sort of retrieval theology is about. Um, it, it's sort of retrieving those, those riches and that wisdom and then learning how they set about organizing them. You know, it's interesting. Um, Richard Muller's famous work, it's like four volumes on post-Reformation, um, theology. Dogmatic. Yeah. Dogmatic theology. But what you see is the theologians, returning to that project but doing it with theology it hadn't moved out into the other spheres and of course as as different forces came through and a move away from those organizing patterns um you know that became taboo it just became looked at as dry scholasticism um but actually um i think something richer is going on there and i think that's what he's he's telling us in that in that four volume mm -hmm. work well i think uh, that's probably a good place to kind of bring this in for a landing uh, we're getting close to the time we have to wrap up. Maybe this is also a, a way for us to think about some shows we could, you know, uh, have in the future, or you know, some yeah. some some conversations we can have about how how to how to go about something like this. <laughs> anyway, uh, Glenn, do you have anything you want to say as we wrap up? Yeah, um, I guess uh, where I really wanted to go with this, and as usual, nothing ever goes the way I expected to, um, <laughs> is to acknowledge that, yeah, there are positives from the Enlightenment, but there are a whole number of real dangers, and we've only touched on a few of them here. But the reaction to the Enlightenment is, this, is exactly the same. There are some positives about Romanticism. There are some things that that are things that we can embrace as believers, but there are also real pitfalls and real dangers in it. And like I said, in a sense, the rom romantics were trying to correct the Enlightenment, and the, the Enlightenment was trying to fight against the things that the romantics valued, but neither of them can really reach the right conclusions apart from Christ. That, it, that it's only in the biblical tradition that you find a full-orbed view of humanity that takes into full account our rationality and our sensibility. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. And, uh, you know, why should we be surprised? I mean, all things are made by him and for him and through him. And so anyway, uh, there you go. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. We really do appreciate your support. Uh, we're glad that you listened all the way to the end of the show. And uh, if uh, you've never given us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show, uh, please do. Uh, it does help us out. Uh, I'm told anyway that when you get more uh, ratings, you get more listeners because the algorithms work that way. People get 
shows recommended to them based upon how many ratings the shows have. So if you if you would do that, we'd appreciate that. We also want to thank everybody who sends us gifts uh, on an ongoing basis. They do help to keep the show solvent, <laughs> and that's uh, that's great. That's important. Anyway, that's enough for now. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye now.